0: Welcome to the penultimate episode of Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a Left Behind reread podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and this week we get to the worst part of the entire novel. Last time, Ray studied the Seven Seal Judgments while Buck learned that Nikolai Carpathia will take over the United Nations. Today, our main characters finally meet up and have some truly uncomfortable conversations. After the recap, I'm going to break down the weird connections between this franchise, a modern day mercenary army, and the Secretary of Education. I actually worked really hard on this week's Apocrypha, so please give it a listen. But for now, let's catch up with our heroes. We meet Rayford and Chloe at the Pan-Continental Club as Chapter 20 begins. They've been waiting for Hattie for about half an hour, and don't think she'll show. Just as they're about to leave, she arrives, And after bragging about meeting Nikolai Carpathia that morning, she makes them wait while she calls Buck. Buck is already in the airport when she calls, telling him that she has to talk to the pilot, and not to worry about meeting with her. Hattie very tactfully explains that she realizes Buck's not that into her, but Buck asks to speak with the pilot she's there to see. He wants to include his thoughts on the disappearances, and might interview his daughter too while he's at it. I'm terribly sympathetic for Hattie. Her entire character exists as a vehicle to push other people's agendas. She has no agency, and I doubt that changes as the books continue. Hattie asks Ray if he'd be okay talking to Buck for a story, and Ray agrees, asking if all four of them should get dinner that night. Before they decide, they realize Buck is coming up the escalator as they speak. After twenty chapters, Buck and Ray finally meet. The two shake hands, and Buck expresses how grateful he is to get the perspective of someone who was in the air when the vanishings occurred. Rayford is equally happy as he thinks this will be a good chance to spread the message of Jesus to a wide audience. Then, Buck is introduced to Chloe. This point, right here, is what takes the franchise from being quaint fanfiction into full-blown creepy wish-fulfillment territory. Quote, Buck was stunned. He loved Chloe's name, her eyes, her smile. She looked directly at him and gave him a firm handshake, something he liked in a woman. So many women felt it was feminine to offer a limp hand. What a beautiful girl, he thought. I want to stress that, much like this chapter, Chloe is 20, Buck is 30. I looked it up to be sure, but the standard rule for dating people younger than you is half your age plus 7. So for all you math whizzes out there, let's do some calculations. Half of 30 is 15, 15 plus 7 is 22. Even if Chloe's birthday is tomorrow, which it isn't, she's far too young for Buck. And the writers know that. However, don't worry about that because by the end of the next book, these two will be married. Keep that in mind as we continue. Hattie says that she and Ray need to speak privately for a while, and suggests Chloe and Buck take a walk around the terminal. Ray isn't psyched about letting his daughter wander the airport with the dude they just met, but Chloe's into it, so off they go. While they talk, Buck is very nervous, unsure what to do with his body. He's impressed by Chloe's intellect and maturity, which definitely is a red flag, They each take turns peeking at each other when the other isn't looking, and Buck wants to ask if she has a boyfriend. She asks first if he's ever been previously married, and he responds that he'd never really been serious with anyone. He asks her about her previous relationships, and she says there was only one, but he ghosted her after graduation. Buck makes an ungainly attempt at complimenting her, fumbles, but recovers with a dad joke. They go and get airport cookies, leaving us readers thoroughly yucked out. Meanwhile, Rayford and Hattie gird themselves for yet another uncomfortable conversation. Ray, ever the gentleman, says, I'm not here to argue with you or even to have a conversation. There are things I must tell you, and I want you just to listen. Hattie asks if she's allowed to talk, and Ray says yes, quote, But this first part, my part, I don't want to be a dialogue. If you interpret Ray as an avatar for Tim LaHaye, you get a lot of insight into the way he thought. It's not knowledge I consider pleasant. Rayford apologizes, saying that he really did consider them friends, and that he thought they really could have had a relationship. When he says that pursuing a relationship together would have been wrong, Hattie frowns, and we are told that she disagrees. Ray continues digging himself into a hole by confessing that his only true interest in her was physical, contradicting his previous statement about them being friends, and that he did not love her. He graciously allows her to speak because, quote, I need to know that you at least forgive me. If you ever find yourself in the unenviable position of telling someone you don't love them, don't immediately request they forgive you. I can't say that I'm an expert on relationships, romantic or platonic, but I'm pretty confident that if you straight up tell someone you don't love them, you are not owed anything from them. Ray's insistence on forcing Hattie to hear his side, and then immediately asking her to forgive him is just so indicative of how some people Men, especially, see relationships transactional and compulsory. In terms of grossness, this chapter is already a real low point. Hattie backs up what I'm saying, wondering aloud if honesty really is the best policy. She's very shaken up by Ray's bluntness and fights to hold back tears. When Ray says he's going to convince her that he really does care about her as a friend, she openly weeps, cursing herself for giving Ray the satisfaction of seeing her cry. Ray brings the conversation back to himself, If you take nothing else from this conversation, you must know that your tears give me no satisfaction. Every one of them is a dagger to me. She runs off to go compose herself. Ray waits, reading a Bible, proud of his conviction. Oh my god, I forgot this next part happened. (sighs) Okay. Remember how Buck and Chloe went to go get cookies? Well, here's what happens next. You're going to find my dad's theory of the disappearings very interesting, Chloe said. Am I, Buck said? She nodded, and he noticed a dab of chocolate at the corner of her mouth. He said, may I, extending his hand. She raised her chin, and he transferred the chocolate to his thumb. Now what should he do? Wipe it on a napkin? Impulsively, he put the thumb to his lips. You know that line from Matthew 26? about the man prophesied to betray Jesus? It would be better for him if he had not been born? Yeah, that's me, right now, in this moment. (sighs) I guess I promised I would keep this podcast going. Not sure what point there is anymore. Anyway, Chloe is about to tell Buck what her dad's theory is, but he cuts her off, saying he wants to get the story straight from him. He adds that he wants to get some college kids' ideas as well, but he probably couldn't use her story since both she and Ray are from the same family. Chloe is crestfallen at this response, saying that she doesn't want to be put in the category of college kid. She asks how old he is, and he tells her that he's 30 and a half. She makes fun of his age, but stops, and says that she likes the way he says her name. Buck asks how old she is, and she says 20. Buck responds, quote, Oh my goodness, I'm consorting with the minor they're joking, but I still want to puke. Hattie returns to sit with Ray, who asks her again if she forgives him. She says she doesn't hold grudges, and Ray accepts that as being close enough. Ray admits that Chloe counseled him against having this talk with Hattie, and she says Chloe's a smart girl, and that they understand each other. Ray quips that they're not that far apart in age, and Hattie rightfully pounces on him, saying he should have thought about her being young enough to be his daughter before he started this whole mess. Ray makes the comment that he'd have to have been 15 to actually be her dad, and since we know Hattie is 27, that makes Ray 42. Half of 42 is 21, plus 7 is 28, so Hattie is, in fact, too young to date Ray. I hate this book so much. Finally, Ray gives Hattie his speech about God, starting from his lackadaisical piety to Irene's devotion. He more or less recaps the entire novel back to her, and she is not interested in the slightest. It takes him half an hour and poor Hattie sits through it. When he finishes, he tells her how to get in touch with Bruce Barnes if she wants to learn the truth, too. Hattie says she appreciates him going through all this trouble to talk to her, and says that even though her family went to church, she never knew any of this rapture stuff. She asks if he's going to tell Buck Williams the same thing. He promises to recount the same tale word for word. Hattie wonders if any of it will actually get published in the Global Weekly, and Ray concedes that it might, right alongside conspiracy theories about aliens. At the start of Chapter 21, Buck and Chloe link back up with Ray and Hattie, where everyone is very uncomfortable. Buck rushes back to his office, and learns Stanton Bailey wants him to travel to Chicago and appoint the new head of the Bureau there. They talk about the changes at the UN, and muse about how nice it would be if Carpathia managed to achieve all the changes he wants. He promises to fly to Chicago tomorrow, and sets about buying plane tickets. He tells the clerk his traveling companion is Chloe Steele, completely without telling her or her dad and buys a seat next to her. He doesn't plan on bringing it up when they have dinner together that night, either. They meet at the Carlisle Hotel, which I guess is pretty swanky because Buck begrudgingly wears a tie. However, he's not the only one who gets dressed up. Quote, Chloe was radiant, looking five years older in a classy evening dress. It was clear she and Hattie had spent the late afternoon in a beauty salon. Rayford thought his daughter looked stunning that evening, and he wondered what the magazine writer thought of her. Clearly, this Williams guy was too old for her. We just keep circling the toilet bowl. During conversation is stilted, as Hattie's still upset with Ray, and Buck just keeps staring at Chloe. Because Buck needs to get his story, Ray bribes the waiters so they can keep their table for an extra hour. Once he and Buck finally get down to business, Ray is excited to give the journalist his gospel pitch. But right as Rayford is about to launch into his testimony, Chloe and Hattie excuse themselves. Ray is furious that his daughter ditched him. But bites the bullet and presses on. However, they come back several minutes later, so I don't know why they bother to throw this detail in. Ray tells Buck everything about his previous spiritual life, the events of the day of the rapture, and his personal conversion to Christianity. Ray feels like he's bombing, but when we switch over to Buck's perspective, we see he's very impressed at Rayford's command of Bible verses that predict the end times. Buck considers himself an educated professional, not prone to superstition but Ray's sincerity begins to win him over. He feels compelled to a higher calling, even though it conflicts with his admiration for Carpathia. Buck thanks Ray for his time, and tells him he'll call him back so he can get permission to use his quotes, but this is just a ruse, so he has an excuse to talk to the pilot some more. Then, because Buck is a total idiot, he asks what Ray and Hattie were discussing in the club earlier. Hattie begins to say it's none of his business, but Ray says they were just talking about the same subject that Buck interviewed him about. Hattie expresses her doubt, and Ray is disappointed when Chloe doesn't want to comment either. Despite these misgivings, Ray still parts amicably with Buck, giving him Bruce Barnes contact info if he wants to learn more about the Antichrist. Buck privately thinks that's an excellent idea, and resolves to meet this pastor when he flies into Chicago. As they're leaving, Chloe hangs back to say goodbye to Buck privately. They're both awkward and bashful, but Chloe takes initiative by saying that even though they've just met, she's really going to miss him. He promises to call but hints that they might be in touch sooner than she realizes chapter 22 takes us to buck's room where he ruminates on the events of that night he's excited to surprise chloe in the morning overwhelmed by ray's remarkable story he thinks back to the night when he saw the russian air force miraculously destroyed in the skies above israel and concedes that something supernatural had indeed occurred everyone in that world at least those intellectually honest with themselves had to admit there was a god after that night only divine intervention could have allowed Israel to survive without a single casualty. And if that was the case, that if there was truly a god somewhere out there, what does that make Buck if he doesn't really believe in him? He's ashamed at his earlier skepticism. As soon as possible, he plans to speak with Pastor Barnes and see if he's as convincing as Ray. Buck considers himself a good person, he's not, but perhaps he could take the next steps towards becoming a born-again Christian, by admitting his sinfulness and accepting Christ into his heart. Perhaps one day, Buck muses, he would use his journalistic influence to educate the world about what being born again really means. The morning before their flight to Chicago, Ray, too, is lost in thought. Quote, While he was certain God had given him the words and the courage to say them, he felt he had done something wrong in communicating to Hattie. Maybe she was right. Maybe he had been too self-serving. Even worse, he fears his interview with Buck went terribly, since Buck offered no more reaction than lending an attentive ear. Chloe is probably embarrassed by him. That's why she hung back to talk to the journalist. He prays fervently, begging God to help Chloe accept Jesus before it's too late. He senses God speaking back to him, saying that enduring the scorn of mortals is what is necessary to achieve eternal life. And I don't want to discredit anyone who has had a genuine religious experience, but I just find this section off putting. If you're going to write a religiously themed book, there's going to be some talking to God, but I get very uncomfortable when the authors put words into God's mouth. Ray considers trying to preach to Chloe once more, but God convinces him that he needs to be patient. Ray trusts in the Lord, and together they travel to the airport. Buck boards the plane last, hoping to surprise Chloe. But when he sits next to her, she's facing away, concentrating on something he can't discern. Quote, When Chloe didn't move even to watch the safety instructions, Buck grew impatient still he didn't want to reveal himself he wanted to be discovered buck you're a 30 year old man don't be such a creep but just because i'm off put doesn't mean chloe is when she finally turns around she covers her mouth and nearly begins crying he says it's nice to see her too and she asks if he's ever received a direct answer to a prayer buck responds that he thought rayford was the guy big into prayer and chloe says she just tried for the first time in years and here he is She informs Buck that this is the nicest thing anyone's done for her in a long time. To which I say, if being stalked and followed onto an airplane is the nicest thing that's happened to her in a long time, Chloe, girl, you need to get out more. They discuss her dad's interview, and Buck admits that Rayford's clarity and conviction was convincing him. Chloe admits that his devotion moved her, especially seeing how much he started to care for people. She confides in Buck that last night, when she was up worrying, she asked God to show her personally that he cared. She worries that all her intellectual friends will make fun of her for even attempting prayer, but Buck's appearance in the next seat has shown her that there's something beyond what we can see and touch. Buck asks what she'll do now that God has called her bluff. She says she'll pray about it, and asks if Buck wants to pray with her too. He somewhat abashedly admits he's not ready, but he says he'll seek guidance from Bruce Barnes. Chloe understands, but says she feels an urge to tell him not to wait too long, because you never know what might happen like father, like daughter, I guess. She asks a flight attendant to tell Ray that she's just received extremely good news. When Ray gets the message, he hands the plane over to his co-pilot and asks Chloe what's up. He's not thrilled to discover Buck Williams sitting next to his daughter, fearing she's about to announce their upcoming engagement. But the news is nothing so sordid. We don't actually get to hear what they discuss, but Buck watches them engage in a serious conversation, pray for a few minutes, and then burst into tears. Compared to the last two episodes, these chapters lack quite a bit of substance. It's mostly Buck's nasty infatuation with Chloe, which as a critic I appreciate since I can always fall back on talking about how gross this whole romance is. Reading that cookie scene makes me question if I ever truly read these novels because I swear that image will be seared into my brain for the rest of my life. If anything, these chapters are perfect examples of why the Left Behind franchise exists. They show how Christians are heavy air quotes supposed to behave frantically gathering followers before the moment they are swept up into God's arms. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to share something you're deeply invested in, and more often than not, makes you a better person. My problem with evangelicalism, and most proselytizing religions in general, besides all the terrible laws they enact, is the insistence on a singular belief, a demand that belief be spread, and condemnation of all those who oppose it. I saw a great Tumblr post that encapsulates what I think is a valid criticism of proselytizing. The purpose is not to convert followers, but to insulate believers against the outside world. If a believer goes out in search of adding to the flock, but is turned away, they are exposed to the reality of the world, with its cold indifference and self-absorption. Those missionaries learn that the only place they'll really be accepted is inside their community, where their beliefs do not have to come up against analysis and ridicule. You can see this in the character of Hattie Durham, Constantly, Rayford tries to convince her of the justice of his cause, and she will not have it. She's not interested, cruel, and follows loose secular morals, and worst of all, isn't smart enough to understand. If you want to know what Lehay and Jenkins think of non-believers, just look at Hattie. Because these chapters don't really have much to cling to, I'm going to pivot for today's apocrypha. Over the last four years, the rising tide of fascism has become especially interesting to me. It may or may not surprise you to learn that there is a certain sect of Christians contributing to these fascist tendencies. Be the anti-government militias, aspiring theocrats, or even leaders of PMCs, a significant portion of American evangelicals wield tremendous influence over both government and private militaries. Specifically, I want to talk about Blackwater. But first, let's get a few things straight. What does the rise of fascism in the U.S. have to do with left behind? As it turns out, the two are somewhat related, if we conflate our favorite franchise with evangelical Christianity as a whole. Born-again pastors have a reputation for preaching hellfire and damnation, but their rousing sermons have taken on a much sharper edge as of late. Perhaps you remember Roy Moore, failed Alabama gubernatorial candidate and pedophile. Well, around the same time he was creeping on teens at the mall, he raised a statue of the Ten Commandments at the Alabama Supreme Court. Which was supplied by a group known as American Veterans for Domestic Defense, a religious organization that could accurately be described as modern-day crusaders. Similar groups include Christian Identity, Faith Force Multiplier, and Christian Embassy, which are essentially paramilitary organizations with the purpose of spreading the word of God while also training for war. A startling amount of these crusaders are leaders in the American military. Furthermore, an estimated 50% of all chaplains in the military subscribe to some version of radical Christianity, encouraging service members to fight with God on their side and destroy infidels of other faiths. I highly recommend you check out American Fascist by Chris Hedges, which I'm using as a source for today, if you want to see how deep the rabbit hole goes. So let's assume you believe that there are a dangerous number of radical Christians with guns in the U.S., which, if you live here, you probably don't need too much convincing. What does the Secretary of Education's brother have to do with them? Unfortunately, a lot. Eric Prince grew up the son of a wealthy businessman in Holland, Michigan, a town founded by Dutch Calvinists. Eric's father renewed his commitment to Christianity after surviving a heart attack, and the young Prince grew up similarly devout, though he would convert to Catholicism later on. Eric attempted to graduate from the Naval Academy, but instead transferred to Hillsdale College, voted the most conservative school in the country in 2006. After his sister Betsy married into the DeVos family, the people behind the alleged pyramid scheme factory known as Amway, the Prince and DeVos families united in their cause to spread conservative Christian principles across the country. In his younger years, Eric became an intern at Focus on the Family's Family Research Council, and from there began his involvement in right-wing politics. At 19, he interned at the White House during George H.W. Bush's presidency, giving $15,000 to support the Republican National Convention. If I had 15K at 19 years old, I would have spent that on computer parts, no question. In 1992, he joined Navy SEAL Team 8 and spent the next four years serving in the Special Forces Unit. When his father died, Eric oversaw the sale of their family business, resulting in a $1.35 billion windfall. That money immediately went towards financing Christian conservative movements in Michigan and Washington. His philanthropy awarded Prince membership to the Council for National Policy, a group of the most influential conservatives in the country, which used their considerable influence to tilt U.S. law to the right. This council began in 1981, started by none other than Reverend Timothy LaHaye, co-author of the Left Behind franchise. See, I told you it would all come together. If you want more details on Prince's incredible ties to religious organizations, pick up a copy of Blackwater by Jeremy Scahill, another book I'm using for this segment. Let's just say, Eric Prince has spent more on funding radical right policy organizations than the entirety of my listening audience will ever make in their lifetime combined. However, what my main worry is, is Prince's most infamous project, the creation and successful deployment of the modern mercenary army formerly known as Blackwater. Blackwater began as the brainchild of a Navy firearms instructor who worked with Eric during his time in the SEALs. Al Clark frequently bemoaned the state of our nation's training facilities, and drew up designs for a military compound that would accommodate any sort of tactical education various units required. When Clark realized his former student was loaded, he hit him up with the concept of an all-in-one training camp. By 1998, the Blackwater facility opened near the swamps of North Carolina and Virginia, hosting scores of SEALs, federal agents, and other law enforcement officers, helping them sharpen up their combat skills. In the aftermath of the Columbine shooting, Blackwater constructed an artificial high school to help train SWAT teams for mass shooter events, and in 2000, they obtained their first major government contract to sell goods and services to federal agencies. So far, so good. Despite my misgivings about how Eric Prince has spent his money, I can't be upset about someone providing specialized combat training to the people who ostensibly keep us safe. However, everything changed for Blackwater following the September 11th attack in New York. As Americans geared up for invasion, the training facility began to process hundreds of service members, providing them with essential combat experience and expertise. And in 2002, an acquaintance of Al Clark, a former CAA agent named Jamie Smith, convinced Eric Prince to expand Blackwater's business into security consulting. Before the end of the year, Blackwater was hiring out mercenaries who made hundreds of thousands of dollars in contracts with the U.S. government. When the invasion of Iraq took place, Blackwater was sending bodyguards and security teams into Baghdad right alongside other military branches. If you remember the news in 2007, you know what happened to Blackwater. Private military contractors employed by Blackwater opened fire on a crowded street, seemingly for no reason, resulting in the deaths of 17 civilians. The negative publicity and subsequent congressional hearing likely prompted the change to the company's name from Blackwater to Z Services and then again to Academy which is its current incarnation. Prince sold the company in 2010. I can't find out how much he made in that sale, but his current net worth is $2.4 billion, so you can guess Eric made out like a bandit. But Eric wasn't the only one making bank while Blackwater was in operation. From American fascists, quote, Blackwater fighters, heavily armed and wearing their trademark black uniforms, were contracted by the government at a cost of $240,000 a day to patrol the streets of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. At the height of Blackwater's power, they were employing at least 1,000 contractors as bodyguards in Iraq out of 160,000 estimated total private contractors. In 2008, the Department of Defense shelled out $100 billion for PMCs in Iraq, far exceeding the cost of deploying a similar amount of regular troops. Even today, the U.S. government's reliance on contractors continues a troubling trend, both financially and ethically. But why, in a podcast about critiquing evangelical books, Should we care about defense spending in 2008? We should care, because the man behind one of the most notorious security companies in the world is driven by the same dangerous zealotry as the people who wrote Left Behind. In an Economist piece from 2009, allegations from former Blackwater employees charge Eric Prince as a bloodthirsty fanatic. In an affidavit lodged with a court in Virginia, one of the witnesses said that Mr. Prince views himself as a Christian crusader tasked with eliminating muslims and the islamic faith from the globe the statement continues to that end mr prince intentionally deployed to iraq certain men who shared his vision of christian supremacy knowing and wanting these men to take every available opportunity to murder iraqis many of these men use call signs based on the knights of the templar the warriors who fought the crusades mr prince operated his companies in a manner that encouraged and rewarded the destruction of iraqi life for example Mr. Prince's executives would openly speak about going over to Iraq to "...lay hajis out on cardboard." Going to Iraq to shoot and kill Iraqis was viewed as a sport or game. Mr. Prince's employees openly and consistently used racist and derogatory terms for Iraqis and other Arabs, such as ragheads or hajis. This same man who wishes to cleanse the planet of non-Christians is still a virulent plague on our current political landscape. Prince has been named as an advisor to the president in matters of intelligence and defense, and has even been implicated in a meeting at Trump Tower with the president's son and a representative of Saudi Arabia to discuss their administration's stance on Iran. If you've read the news lately, that should set off some alarm bells, as we prepare to deploy increasing numbers of service members and military supplies into the Arabian Peninsula. I'm actually recording this as the president prepares to give a speech about the death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Don't get me wrong, I'm glad that dude's dead, but the fact that people like Eric Prince are shaping U.S. policy does give credence to al-Baghdadi's claim that the West is out to get Muslims. Furthermore, as I mentioned at the top, Prince's sister Betsy DeVos just happened to be appointed to be the nation's Secretary of Education after a brutal Senate confirmation. Funny how small the world is sometimes. If anything in the podcast has mattered, it is this. Eric Prince, and people like him, want to create a country governed by, and intended for, only Christians. And unless any of y'all want to get caught between Catholics and Evangelicals in the sequel to the Thirty Years' War, we should probably not let him get any closer to the levers of power. That'll bring us to the end of our show. Please don't forget to give us a 5-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts you're just as obsessed with this stuff as me, consider recommending the show to a friend. Follow at RapturedPod on Twitter for news about new episodes. Follow me on Twitter at AaronSXL, and join us next time for the end of Left Behind. Hope you have a great week. This has been Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a podcast of the Earth's Last Days.